0: John chapter 14, we have been spending the last few weeks talking about Israel, Bible prophecy and the conflict in the Middle East and you cannot talk about either any, any of those topics without talking about Islam. And so, of course, in the the past four studies, we've referenced Islam, we've alluded to certain teachings thereof, we've mentioned some things, we've shown some pictures and and shared with you some uh, Islamic doctrine, but today we're going to go a little further. We're going to talk a little bit more about Islam, and we're going to draw a comparison between uh, the Bible and the Quran and the teachings thereof. Of course, it won't be exhaustive, it would take a a long time to do that, but we're going to talk about a few key things. But before we get into it, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us. We believe that your word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is authoritative. It's right in everything that it says and teaches, and we thank you for it, Lord. And we thank you that it is living and active, that it contains the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, and how glorious the gospel is, that you would save sinners like us. Lord, I pray for those of us who have already been saved that you would restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. That you'd stir in our hearts once again a profound gratitude for what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. And also, Lord, that you would stir in up, up in us a missionary heart, a heart to see the gospel go forth in this community, in this nation, and to the nations, Lord, stir that in us. There are so many, especially our brothers and sisters in Islam who... Don't understand the good news of what you've done, Jesus. And so exalt that truth in our own hearts. Exalt that truth in our midst, in our community, and unto the nations, Lord. And do a great work in us with regards to your gospel and the glorious thing that it is. Anoint this Bible study, Lord. You know I feel inadequate and unworthy for such things. So author my thought and my words, and Jesus, you be glorified. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's begin to read here in John chapter 14, and then we'll get to three points that we're going to look at, but I just want to mention a few key things from John chapter 14 as a background. We start reading in verse 1. This is the night before the cross. It's the farewell discourse of Jesus. His words in John 14 verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me, or believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house. When he says that, he's speaking of heaven. When he says dwelling places there, the word can also be translated mansions. Basically, some wonderful place that is for you and I when we go to our Father's house. And he starts this discourse by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. Isn't that good news? Because it's troublesome times. And yet the Lord says to you and I today, as he said to these disciples 2,000 years ago, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house in heaven are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Isn't that good? Jesus would tell us if there was not a place for us in heaven. He's honest. I mean, He's God in the flesh. He's got to be sort of a prerequisite for the job, so to speak. But He's honest and forthright. And if there wasn't a place in heaven for you, He would have told us so. I want you to notice what He says at the end of verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. Now we're told in the book of Colossians that all things were created by Jesus Christ. All things were created by Him and for Him. We're told in the book of Genesis that all things were created in six days. Now He said here about 2,000 years ago that He was going to prepare a place for you and I. He has been preparing this place for some 2,000 years. If He created the world and all that we see and don't see in six days, imagine how awesome this joint is. Amen? I go to prepare a place for you. And look what He says in verse 3. And if I go... Now, here's a little lesson in literal Bible interpretation. If I go... Now, that was a prophecy at the moment. He hadn't gone yet. So technically, it was a Bible prophecy. Now, when he went, how was that prophecy fulfilled? Literally and physically, wasn't it? I mean, he literally went and he physically went. It was not figurative. It was not allegorical. If I go, and the fulfillment thereof was literal and physical. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself. Now, by way of logic, and by way of basic principles of Bible interpretation, if we saw that the first part of the verse was fulfilled literally and physically, He literally actually went and He physically went, how will then that second part be fulfilled? Literally and physically. He will literally actually and physically come again by way of logic and basic rules of Bible interpretation. And the reason that he will come again, we see there in the middle of verse 3, is to receive you and I unto himself. Now this is the first mention in the New Testament of something called the rapture of the church. It is to be distinguished from the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming is that event spoken of in Revelation 19 and Zechariah 14 and elsewhere, where he comes and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And he is enthroned in Jerusalem and he rules and reigns during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. That is the technical second coming of Jesus Christ. But this is the rapture where he does not come to earth, but as it's described to you and I in Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians 15, we meet the Lord in the air. Notice what he says, I will receive you unto myself. And so we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that at the... Last trump of God, at the shout of Michael the archangel, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord in the sky, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words, the last verse there says. So this is the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture of the church is designed by God to preserve you and I from the tribulation period. It's a very logical and clear reason why God would do that. In the book of Revelation, the tribulation period is described specifically as God pouring out His wrath on an unrepentant world. Now if you're a Christian, you are among those who have repented. And so your wrath was taken upon Jesus Christ at the cross, amen? And so your wrath has already been dealt with. Now, if the tribulation period is God pouring out His wrath on an unrepentant world, it wouldn't make any sense at all that the church of Jesus Christ would be here. God would be double-wrathing you. God does not double-wrath people. It says in the book of 1 Thessalonians that we were saved from the wrath that is to come by Jesus Christ. Speaking of the tribulation period. And so here is mentioned by Jesus Christ the rapture of the church, that glorious moment that we're to be looking for when he comes and there is a shout of Michael the archangel, the trump of God, and bam, in the twinkling of an eye, we go to be with the Lord and so we shall ever be with the Lord. He finishes the verse by saying that where I am, there you may be also. Don't you love that? Jesus Christ here reveals that the heart of God for you is that you would be with him. Isn't that good to know that your God wants you to be with Him? He's not obligated to that fact, understand. It's not as though when man sinned, God went, Oh, man, what are we going to do now? Now we have to save these little dirt balls. I don't want to save them. I don't want to be with them. But because they sinned, now we're obligated. No, that's not the case at all. Our sin did not obligate God to do anything by love. He has chose to save you and I. And because of love, He wants to be with you and I. That is a wonderful thing that that's the heart of our Heavenly Father. The promise in James is draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And the whole purpose of the cross is that we might be with God. Jesus didn't die on the cross and spill His blood that we might just be delivered from bad habits, though the cross has that effect, doesn't it? Jesus Christ died upon the cross and spilt His blood that we might be sinful men and women reconciled to a holy God and be with Him. That is the point of our salvation that we might be with God. He wants you. Isn't that awesome? There is something in the heart of every man and woman. There is something that longs to be wanted, longs to be desired by their Father. Did you know that? God put that there as a reflection of our relationship with Him. It is right for you to want to be wanted by your Father. That's a reflection of God's heart for you. He wants you, He wants you to be with Him. Now, when circumstances that are horrific prevail, or a father fails, and a young boy or young girl does not feel wanted by their father, that creates tremendous wounds in the spirit of a person. Deep wounds. Wounds that could be healed by the Father heart of God. As you recognize His love through Jesus Christ, as you experience His love, as the Holy Spirit pours the love of the Father abroad in our hearts, Romans 5.5, then His Father heart begins to heal our wounded hearts. But all of that to say that God has designed something in every man and woman that needs to be wanted by that father figure. And God is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And Jesus Christ, the very manifestation, the exact representation of God on earth here, declares that the purpose is that where I am, there you may be also. Your God wants you to be with him. That's a glorious truth. Furthermore, it says in verse 4, And you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, now you know Thomas, Doubting Thomas. Thomas said, Lord, I doubt that we know the way. Well, he didn't say that, but he said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, this is so wonderful and so simple, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father through me. I love how simple he made it. Lord, where do I go? What do I do? Well, I'm the way. What do I believe? What do I cling to? I'm the truth. Well, how do I live in this life? I'm the life. And then he says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ claims absolute exclusivity. It's an abomination. It is blasphemy. It is evil. When people say, there are many ways to God. Jesus claimed that he was the only way. It's a radical claim, I know. But you must understand that he gave validity to all of his words in this. He is the only figure in history who ever predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. Nobody in history has ever done that. First of all, nobody else in history has ever offered to die for you. Nobody other than Jesus Christ. He said, I will die for you, but after three days I will rise again. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it up again. And so he gave his life for us on the cross in atoning death. And then he rose again after three days conquering sin and death. And because he's the only figure in all of history, to predict and pull off his own death and resurrection. Therefore, his words have validity beyond anyone else in history. And you can count on that. You can believe that. You can take that to the bank. You can proclaim that. Charles Spurgeon once said that the word of God is like a lion. All you got to do is let it out the cage. And that's what you've got to be doing in these last days, people. You've got to be letting this thing out the cage. You've got to be letting those truths out the cage. I'll tell you what, the lion will lead up the lies. That there are many ways. Jesus claimed exclusivity, and he proved it through his resurrection from the dead. Now he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you do not yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of these works themselves. Jesus here makes a clear claim to deity. There's no one that could refute that. You might not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, but you could not possibly refute that he claimed to be. He says here very clearly, I am the Father, are one. And little Philly, he says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? Have you been with me so long and you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Open your eyes. Hello. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And he begins to reveal to them that incredible thing called the trinity. Jesus claimed absolute exclusivity for salvation unto the world. And he claimed deity. And he backed up his claims with miraculous proofs. In fact, he says here in verse 11, uh, otherwise believe on account of the works themselves. Now Jesus, he did some miracles, amen? I mean, he walked on some water. He multiplied some bread and some loaves. He raised some people from the dead. He caused some lepers to be healed. He opened the eyes of the blind, so on and so forth. When Peter needed money to pay taxes, he went and caught the fish and the money was in the mouth of the fish. I mean, that's good stuff. Jesus performed some amazing miracles, but the greatest of which is the resurrection from the dead. He said, it's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks for a sign. Only one sign shall be given unto them. That is the sign of Jonah. Speaking of Jonah being a picture of his resurrection from the dead, three days in the belly and then spit up on the beach. The greatest sign is his resurrection from the dead improves. He is the only begotten son, the unique savior of the world and God in the flesh. Now the Bible clearly teaches that and the Quran contradicts that. The Quran says explicitly, I have one right here. In Surah 19, uh, a Surah is like a chapter, if you're not familiar with the Quran. Surah 19, verses 88 through 92. I'll read it for you. It says, They say, Allah most gracious has begotten a son. Who might they be? The Christians. We're the ones who say, God has begotten a son. So, here's Islam talking about you and I. They say, Allah most gracious has begotten a son. Indeed, ye have put forth a most monstrous thing, as if the skies are ready to burst and the earth to split asunder and the mountains to fall down in utter ruin, that they should invoke a son for all of the most gracious. For it is not consonant with the majesty of Allah, most gracious, that he should beget a son. So the Bible says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And Islam, the Quran, acknowledges that we as Christians say this, but it says it's not befitting of Allah that He should have a son. It says it elsewhere. It says in Surah 112, verse 3, Concerning Allah, He begetteth not, nor is He begotten. Now, who is that a direct attack on? The person and identity of Jesus Christ and the triune nature of God. If you go on our next trip to Israel with us, we will take you to the Temple Mount there will take you on the temple mount and will stand underneath the dome of rock the dome of the rock and if you could read arabic you would see these scriptures written underneath that golden dome in arabic inset in the tile that god has no son allah is not begotten nor does he beget there is one god and he is allah it's an attack against jesus christ so you begin to understand that it is a logical Impossibility for the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran to be the same God. And yet, this is the popular opinion. This is the opinion of world leaders that ought to know better. Some of the greatest world leaders of our time have said, well, Islam, they worship the same God as us, he including himself in the Christian camp. That is a logical impossibility because the scriptures of Islam and the scriptures of Christianity say two opposing things concerning Jesus Christ. One asserts his deity and his uniqueness as the only savior of the world and one absolutely denies it. It is impossible that Allah and the God of the Bible are the same God. If they are, then they're a schizophrenic God. And that would be no God at all. And so now, we're going to look at a few things from the Bible and a few things from the Quran. And we're going to draw some comparisons. And I believe that what the Lord will do is... Restore unto you the joy of His salvation. Stir in your heart once again a sincere attitude of gratitude for how wonderful it is that we've been saved for the awesome things that Jesus Christ has done. And then I think simultaneously, He'll stir in you a heart of compassion for the Muslim population of the world. One out of every five persons on the face of the earth is a Muslim. I believe that God will stir compassion in some of you today and some of you will want to go to a Muslim nation like Luke did in Indonesia. Some of you will want to help others get there to preach the gospel. So I've got these three points. Hey, that was just my introduction, man. Twenty minutes. We got plenty of time. We got these three points. Point number one in Jesus, the God of the Bible, has demonstrated his love for you and I. Allah demands that you demonstrate your love for him. Second point that we'll look at, through Jesus, we can have absolute forgiveness of sins and the guarantee of salvation. Islam can make no guarantee that Allah will forgive you or allow you into heaven. And point number three will be, the follower of Jesus can know that the God of the Bible is totally satisfied with him. The Muslim can never know if Allah is satisfied with him or not. Point number one, In Jesus, the God of the Bible has demonstrated his love for you and I. And yet Allah demands that you demonstrate your love for him. Now in the book of 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, we have this incredible declaration. God is love. And that is the very essence of the God of the Bible. That is the definition of his person that he is love. And it is the most potent claim of the Bible. And our salvation is based upon that truth. Again, God did not save you out of obligation. God did not merely save you so you could do things. He saved you because He loves you. Amen? It is love that kept Jesus Christ upon the cross. He didn't have to take three nails, but He chose to do so because He loves you. It is the basis of our salvation, and it is the basis of our evangelism. That is a wonderful truth that we go forth with, with is, hey man, God loves you. The world does not all know that. Islam definitely does not believe that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Satan gets, so people, gets people so weighed down with guilt and condemnation and shame and that feeling of filthiness that the heart of humanity says, God can't love me. I don't even love myself. I am altogether unlovable. How could God love me? And yet that is a clear declaration of the Bible, the basis for salvation, and evangelism. But, the Quran, contains no such statements. The Bible teaches, that though God hates sin, and is even angry at sinners, He loves them. But the Quran teaches, that Allah hates sinners. It says in Surah, again that's a chapter in the Quran, Surah 9, 190, for Allah Loves not transgressors. It says it multiple times in the Quran. God does not, Allah does not love sinners. That is very different from what the Bible teaches concerning our God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, He gave Christ Jesus to die for us. God demonstrated His love when we were sinners. He loved us when we were unlovable, when we were in rebellion, when we were contrary to Him and His word and His character and His plan, when we were walking away from Him, saying, I want nothing to do with you, God. That is when God demonstrated His love for you and I. The clear teaching of the Bible is God loves dirty, rotten sinners. The clear teaching of the Quran is Allah does not love sinners. In Surah 2, Verse 195, we read, And spend your substance in the cause of Allah, and make not your own hands contribute to destruction, but do good, for Allah loves those who do good. Here we see that in the Quran, the love of Allah is portrayed as being conditional. He loves those who do good things, right things, according to Quranic teachings. But if you do not do it all at once, He does not love you. It is a holy conditional love based upon your performance. Compare that with John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. Listen. If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand, the psalmist wrote. If our relationship with our God is based upon our performance, are you bummed? I'm fully bummed. Because my performance is totally cheesy. I mean, have I ever blown it? And yet our God is a God who loves the prodigal. Remember the prodigal son? prodigal took his inheritance early, went out and spent it on uh, licentious, loose living. Prostitutes and drunkenness. And then when he came to his senses, he headed back to the house of the father. And what did the father do? The father was waiting for him, saw him coming, and the father ran to him, embraced him, fell upon his neck, and in the Greek it's very clear, kissed him over and over and over again in the neck. He put the robe on him, he put the ring on the finger, the sandals on the feet, and he said, kill the fatted calf, we're having a party, this son of mine has come home. Now the performance of that son was horrific. He had done everything wrong. But the the father, which is a picture of God, loved him. Didn't deal with him according to his performance. Accepted him, received him, clothed them, embraced them, kissed them, put the ring, which was a picture of ownership, on his fingers, and he put the sandals on his feet, which is a picture of freedom, and he had a party for them. That's our God, people. That's the God of the Bible. Amen. But sadly, the God of the Quran has a performance-based relationship obligated upon his people. Surah 3, 31 and 32, say... If you do love Allah, follow me. Allah will love you and forgive your sins. For Allah is oft forgiving and most merciful. Not always forgiving. Not totally merciful. Oft forgiving and most merciful. Say, obey Allah and his messenger. But if they turn back, Allah loves not those who reject the faith. Aren't you glad that your God, the God of the Bible, is faithful even when you're faithless? Aren't you glad that Romans chapter 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Commenting on this distinction between the Quran and the Bible, Ergen Kanner in his book Unveiling Islam writes, the greatest difference between the two faiths is the personal quality of God. Allah sent prophets and messengers to proclaim the truth. In Christianity, God the Father sent His Son to be the truth. To die for sin and to reconcile men and women to himself. In Islam, one must love Allah in order for Allah to love him. In the Bible, we're told that we love because God first loved us in the book of 1 John. In Christianity, God loved people first in order to secure their salvation. Now, that's the heart of God and that's key. God wants people to be saved. He's the God that desires that none would perish. We're told in Ezekiel 33 that He does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn. And what He wants to do for humanity is secure their salvation. And what more could God do than give His only Son? What more could He do than to spread His arms and die upon the cross and to spill His blood, which removes our sin? Prior to Jesus coming in the sacrificial... uh, uh, sacrificial context of the Old Testament, those sacrifices day in and day out only provided a covering for sin. But they never removed the sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. And yet, without the shedding of blood, sins cannot be forgiven. We're told in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. That the life is in the blood and God has given us the blood for atonement. And so God draped himself in humanity. Took on flesh and bone and blood. And then spilt that blood upon the cross. And because he was sinless and a man and yet God. He could pay for your sin and my sin. And not just cover it but wholly remove it. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus. He said behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, the occupation of God is to, in His love, secure salvation for humanity. What more could He do? How much more wonderful could He make it? Point number two, through Jesus, we can have absolute forgiveness of sins and the guarantee of salvation. Islam can make no guarantee that Allah will forgive you or allow you into heaven. Now, a few verses from the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says concerning the cross having canceled out the certificate of debt of decrees against us and which was hostile to us he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross do you know Christian that has been forgiven or beloved person that is here today who has not accepted yet the forgiveness of Jesus Christ do you know that there exists a certificate of debt against you and that it is hostile to you The first thing on that certificate of debt is your ancestral debt. That is, as a descendant of Adam, you have what is called original sin. There is the depravity of man. That we are sinners by nature being descended from Adam who sinned. It is told in the book of Romans that death entered by one man. Death being the penalty of sin. And so you have the ancestral debt on this certificate of debt. But then there is the 613 commandments, positive ones, in the Old Testament. We're told in the book of 1 John that to err in one of them is to err in all of them. So if you have ever sinned in any way, you are guilty of the whole of the law. And those certificate of decrees, those decrees are written down. And they are hostile to us. They are against us. And what they do for us every time a sin is added to that is it adds to the debt of wrath. We are storing up for ourselves wrath, Romans chapter 2 says. But when a person comes to Jesus Christ, then that certificate of debt that had your name on it and your sins on it is nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. It's dealt with. It's removed. It's removed. And we're told in, amen, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus took the fullness of the wrath upon him, paid the full price for our sins. And now that certificate of debt is dealt with, it is taken out of the way. How out of the way? Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll memorize that verse, Christian. Memorize that verse. It's a great one for warfare. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do you mean warfare? I mean spiritual warfare. I'm talking about the enemy of your soul, Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Do you know that he loves to get you feeling condemned? He loves to have the Christian feeling ashamed, feeling dirty and worthless, and to bring you under that yoke and that weight again. Listen, when the enemy begins to do that... You need to remember Colossians 2.14 that that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. How far out of the way? As far as the east is from the west buried in the deepest sea. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean it doesn't exist. God has removed it. It's done with. Tetelestai. Paid in full. It is finished. You might be blowing it right now Christian. You might be in a sexually immoral relationship. You might be going on blind places you shouldn't go. You might be flirting with something you shouldn't be flirting with. You might be beset by all sorts of sin, but there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus for you. Do you deserve it? Not by any means. Is he longing to give it to you? By every mean. The Lord is wanting to have compassion on you today. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 said, The Lord waits on high to have compassion. He longs to be merciful to you and I. He removes the weight of sin. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my burden, which is easy and light. Satan wants you burdened down with the weight of sin. Jesus wants you set free, and whom the Son is set free is free indeed. I hope, Christian, you're enjoying it. I hope that you're enjoying your freedom from sin. Christians often confuse it and they think, well, there's freedom in the Lord and so I've got freedom to do what I want. Wait a minute, man. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. There's a big difference. And whom the Son is set free is free indeed. I hope you're enjoying that freedom, that lightness, the yoke of Jesus Christ. Don't let the enemy weigh you down with guilt and shame. It's been removed as far as east is from the west. Amen? And in Christianity, we have an historical event that we can look back to and know that our salvation is sure. Namely, the cross of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, and the resurrection. Now, these are historical events. We know from history that Jesus of Nazareth existed. We know he died upon the cross. And it is knowable from historical evidence that he rose from the dead. And guess what? The tomb is empty. Been there, seen it. She's empty. And so we have historical proof. We can look back and observe empirical data that tells us our salvation is sure and our forgiveness is absolute. Now, sadly, the Muslim has no such assurance. If the Muslim wants to look back in history at what their founder did, they can go to June 8th, 632 A.D., the day that Muhammad died. They want to see him buried. They could go to Medina today and see his grave. He died on June 8th, 632. There's no assurance from their founder. If you're walking through a wilderness and you're losing your way and there's two paths that you could go by and you look down one and there is laying there a rotting dead corpse and you look down the other and there is a valiant warrior clothed in white, mighty and brave and alive and powerful. Which way do you go? Don't go the way of death, man. Sadly, the Muslim cannot look back in history and see any proof of his salvation. What can the Muslim look for? For assurance of his salvation. Well, I'm going to quote to you for this next little point here from the Hadith. The Hadith is uh, will define a collection of traditions containing sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Taken together with accounts of his daily life, they constitute the major source for Muslims besides the Quran. So the Muslim generally esteems the Quran and the Hadith, a collection of sayings uh, by Muhammad. And considering the assurance of salvation for the Muslim, here's what Muhammad said in Hadith 5, 266. Muhammad said by Allah, though I am the apostle of Allah, yet I do not know what Allah will do to me. He was speaking with regards to salvation, eternity. Though I am the apostle, the prophet, the founder of Islam, I myself do not know what Allah will do with me on the final day. Now, Muhammad questioned his own salvation, even though he's the greatest of prophets, the founder, and the exemplar example. Therefore, how could Muslims have any real sense of salvation, the surety thereof, or security thereof, when the one who is to be their ultimate example was himself totally unsure about eternity? And the Muslim in the Quran is commanded to follow the example of Muhammad. And we're told in the Quran that salvation for the Muslim is based upon works. It says in Surah eleven one fourteen, for those things that are good, remove those that are evil. Now the Bible is very contrary to that. Contrary, excuse me. It says in the book of Isaiah that even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. And it tells us that there is not a cosmic set of uh, weighing scales. You know what I mean? And in the end, if you do enough good, it cancels out the bad. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches something infinitely more wonderful. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us that by grace we have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Listen to how wonderful that is. Why don't I see smiles on your pretty little faces? Listen to how wonderful that is that we have been freed from having to perform. Because in case you don't know, we don't measure up. And we have been freed from having to perform. Our salvation is according to grace through faith and not of works. And yet so sadly for the Muslim, they are taught in their scriptures that it is based on works and that the good things remove those that are evil. And yet, even that is not sufficient. You could perform wonderfully as a Muslim. And in the end, as Muhammad said of his life, not at all be certain if Allah will let you into paradise. Because the uh, the Quran clearly teaches that Allah is capricious. Define it for you. Given to sudden and unaccountable changes of behavior. And that there is no guarantee that he will forgive. Allah is capricious. Says so in Surah 2, 284. Allah forgives who he pleases And punishes who he pleases. For Allah has power over all things. Surah 32, 13. If we so willed, we could have brought every soul its true guidance. Listen to what that says. If Allah wanted to, he could have guided every soul into paradise. But the word from me will come true. I will fill hell with demons and men altogether. The Quran teaches that Allah predestines people to hell. That it is not his will that all would be saved. And he offers no assurance for the basic Muslim of salvation. He is capricious and could change his opinion in his mind at any time. So Ergen Kanner, again in his book, Unveiling Islam, writes, As a result, the more devoutly one understands the Quran and follows the exemplar, that is Muhammad, the less certain one will be of reaching paradise. Further, the more sensitive one is to his or her moral failures, the more spiritually anxious one must become. Isn't that horrific? The more one closely adheres to the Quran and to Islam and follows the Prophet Muhammad, the more and more unsure as Muhammad they become of their salvation. Throughout Muslim thought, hell always seems much nearer than paradise. This is heartbreaking. Compare that with the wonderful words of the Bible, where we're told in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Consider the words of Jesus in John 10, 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. You understand that we have a covenant keeping God. That He makes covenants and our salvation is based upon a covenant that God made with Israel. And according to Romans chapter 11, we have been grafted into that covenant. The Bible declares emphatically that God is a covenant keeping God. And that the upholding of that covenant depends upon Him and His faithfulness alone. And so you can know by history, by the word, the scriptures, and by the character of God, that when you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you have absolute forgiveness, total forgiveness. You have the assurance of salvation. Now the final point. The follower of Jesus can know that the God of the Bible is totally satisfied with him. The Muslim can never know if Allah is satisfied with him or not. Romans chapter 3, very important theological passage here. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, we'll define it in a moment, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, God had a problem. Namely, that he was a holy and righteous God and the man was sinful and unrighteous, but that God loved us. And because he loves us, he wants to be with us. But that presents a problem in his holiness and his domain And our unholiness, our uncleanness. I grew up here in Carpinteria, born and raised. And I grew up surfing in this town. My parents, the house I grew up in was near the beach. And my mom has always kept a beautiful house. She's a beautiful woman. She's always kept a beautiful house. And she had these off-white carpets as I was growing up. You know, they weren't quite stark white, but they were pretty white, you know, and she kept them pretty clean. And I grew up surfing down here uh, at Tar Pits, which is a surf spot right down here, if you go down here. Now, you, you already discern something from the name, Tar Pits. And so I go and I surf Tar Pits, and of course I come home, and I come home barefoot on my skateboard, you know, and my feet are covered in Tar. And you know, I've been surfing all day, I'm just a grom, I'm just a kid, and I want to get in my mama's house and eat everything. And so I'm ready to just run in the house, I throw my skateboard, I throw my surfboard, and I'm beelining for the front door, and without fail, there's my mama at the front door. And she's got a rag and a can of gas, and she says, boy, you better clean those feet. And she would make me take the gas and scrub and scrub and scrub. She said, you're not coming to my house with tar on your feet. She loves me. She wants me to be in the house, but I was too dirty. I messed up her carpets, you understand. In the same way, you and I were dirty with sin. The stain of sin is like tar upon us. And God loves you. He wants you to be in His house, but you got to get clean. And it's not with a can of gasoline. It's with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen. And by his blood, we are justified. What God did is justify us. It's a legal term, justification. What does it mean to be justified? You may have heard a simplification of it in the past. To be justified means to be made just as if you never sinned. And that's true, but that's only half the truth. It is to be made just as if you never sinned, it's to have your sins removed. But there's another part to justification, this legal work done by God through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that is you and I being made righteous, receiving merits, because the perfect life of Jesus Christ, His righteousness and His record, is imputed to you and I when we come into His kingdom. Our record, our failures are removed as far as east is from the west. But we're not just left with an empty record, that would make us sort of morally neutral before God. Instead, we become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus lived a perfect life so that you didn't have to. He died an atoning death so that you wouldn't have to. And when you come into His kingdom, His perfect record is imputed to you. And so when you get to heaven, it's not as though God will be standing there saying, Oh, all right, fine. Come in. You just barely made it. Come. i removed your sins, but nothing good. Just you're barely here. It's not what God did. He removed our sins and He imputed to us the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And because we're now in Him, God sees you through the lens of Christ Jesus who is perfect in every way, who has all the riches in His account, who has all the merit in His account, who has all the standing, all the rights, and all the position. And we are in Him. So when you get to heaven, yes! Yes, my son, come in. You're perfect. I prepared a place for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here you come. We've been waiting for you. Oh, you're awesome. That'll be the heart of God because you're in Christ Jesus and that's justification. And the way that that is accomplished is through propitiation. As it says there in Romans 3, that Jesus was displayed publicly on the cross as a propitiation. Now here's what that word means very simply. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. A sacrifice that satisfies. And so Jesus Christ on the cross was a sacrifice that satisfied God. What about God? Satisfied the standard of God, the judgment of God, and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ satisfied God's standard of holiness and perfection. The judgment of according to his righteousness and that certificate of debt. And the wrath of God, because he's a just God, there had to be a penalty. We hate a judge on earth, who though someone is clearly guilty, lets them go. If it's you, you like it. But if it's anybody else, you hate that. You say, who is this crooked judge? Can't we have just judges? Well, God is a just judge. He's not going to wake an eye at sin. He's not going to bury it under the rug. He's not going to let you off the hook. But Jesus Christ... Upon the cross was a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. He took the fullness of God's wrath for you and I. And here's what that means that doctrinal phrase, propitiation. It now means that God is totally satisfied with you, the Christian. I mean, He is totally satisfied because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. You marvel at it because you know how cheesy you are. You marvel at it because you know how unsatisfied you are even with yourself. But won't you just receive the grace of God? According to the cross and the theological truths thereof, He is satisfied with you. Isn't that the best feeling in the world? When someone is just satisfied with you? Sometimes I get insecure and I think, oh... I'm an idiot. I am because I'm a man, and I think, oh, my wife, she must be unsatisfied in some way. You know what I mean? And I just, oh, I got to somehow perform and do something, and maybe if I get her something. But then because she's a wonderful wife, she'll come along, and in her love, she'll quiet me. And she'll communicate to me that, as much of an idiot as I am, she's satisfied with me. It's the most wonderful feeling in the world. How much more amazing that God is satisfied with you? God doesn't go, oh gee whiz, Brit. Oh. Michael, can you go do something about Brit? You got a sword. Go slap this kid. Gabriel, you're a messenger. Go tell him a few things. This kid is killing me. That's not the heart of our God. He's totally satisfied. Romans 5.1 says our standing before Him is in grace, undeserved favor. And when He deals with you, Christian, He deals with you according to the account and the riches and the position and the person of Jesus Christ and not your own. And isn't that good news? It's wonderful news. The heartbreaking thing is that there is no such news in Islam. It is based upon performance. Allah loves those who perform well and who love Him. And He hates sinners. Our God never changes so you can bank upon these truths. Our God never changes. James 1.17 Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Even if you were to detect somewhere in the Quran a teaching from Allah that was along the lines of what we see here in the Bible. Undeserved favor and grace and sureness of salvation. You can never take that to the bank because, as I said previously, Allah is capricious. He might change his whole gig. It says here in Surah 2:106, if we supersede any verse or cause it to be forgotten, we bring a better one or a similar one. Do you not know that Allah has a power over all things? There is in the Quran something called the law of abrogation. That is the later revelation given to Muhammad by Allah supposedly cancels out previous revelation. It cancels it out. It abrogates it. That's why early on in early Hadith um, uh, when uh, Muhammad was still in a state of peace with Jews and Christians we see him say embrace Jews and Christians as your friends. They are the people of the book. They are to be esteemed. And later on then, when Jews and Christians rejected Muhammad's particular brand of monotheism, he said, oh, I have new revelation from Allah, kill Jews and Christians. And the Jews are descended from pigs and apes. It says it in the Quran multiple times. And what was said earlier does not matter. It has been abrogated by that which was revealed later on by Allah. So even if you did find a doctrine of grace somewhere in the Quran, you could not take it to the bank because their God can change it any time. He is capricious. Our God is unchanging. He is faithful. He is a covenant-keeping God. And in Islam, jihad and martyrdom are the only hope of eternal peace. It says in Surah 3.157, And if you are slain or die in the way of Allah, forgiveness and mercy from Allah are far better than all they could amass. Isn't it just like Satan? To make a counterfeit God, to create a religious system which gave people no security, no comfort, no peace, no absolute promise, no sense of their God being satisfied with them. Isn't it just like Satan to create that religious system and say, "Oh, but there is one way that you could know Allah will accept you. That's if you die as a martyr fighting against non-believers. Isn't it just like Satan, don't you hate him? Isn't it just like Satan to create such an evil system that breeds insecurity? To the point that people say, if I'm going to be secure, I might as well be a martyr. It's the only way. I hate the devil. But isn't it just like the God of the Bible to come after us himself, to satisfy his own righteous standard with his own son? that we might know that He's satisfied with us, that we might be sure that He's pleased with us through Christ Jesus. Listen, Allah says to His people, you die for me and then we'll have a sure relationship. The God of the Bible says, I draped myself in humanity and died for you to secure your relationship with me. Don't tell me they're the same God. Don't tell me they're the same God. In Jesus, the God of the Bible has demonstrated his love for you and I. Through Jesus, we can have absolute forgiveness of sins and the guarantee of salvation. The follower of Jesus can know that the God of the Bible is totally satisfied with him. Friends, these are wonderful things. And if your heart is not on fire for Jesus Christ today, you're tripping, man. If you are not on fire for Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, you had better wake up, brother. You are tripping. The salvation that we've been given is unbelievable. It is amazing. Greater love hath no man than this. Man, I hope you're walking in the grace of God. I hope you're experiencing the peace and the love and the fullness of Christ Jesus. And I hope that God is birthing in you a heart for Muslims whom he formed in his mother's womb. He knows every one of them by name has numbered the hairs upon their head and he wants nothing more for them to be saved but he's entrusted you and I with a ministry of reconciliation. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? I hope some of you will go. I believe in these last days that every Christian had ought to be going to the mission field or supporting someone that's going. I believe that every Christian ought to be engaged in the Great Commission that way. Yes, it starts in your immediate sphere of influence, but it is to go to the uttermost parts of of the earth. I'm just going to tell you today, it's, a, it's my opinion, I think it's biblical, that every Christian ought to be determined to go on the field or support someone that is. I think that's so right. And one out of every five people on the face of the earth is a Muslim, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is like water to them. It's like honey to them. I can be free of performance? God loves me? He can be satisfied with me? I can be sure of eternity. People preach the gospel. It is so good and it is so awesome. Lord, thank you so much for such an incredible love. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet received your forgiveness that so right now in their heart they would repent before you. They'd say, God, I've been wrong. I'm a sinner and now I see that you're a savior. Save me. Forgive me, Lord. Lord. Draw them unto yourself. Save people today as they cry out to you. Thank you that you will in no way turn away anybody that cries out to you for salvation, Jesus. And I pray that you would revive those who are already yours. That you would revive your bride. That you would revive Christians. That we would be zealous for these things. Lord, we're sorry that we're so weighed down with the cares of this world. The boastful pride of life, life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes the sin that so easily entangles us. We're sorry that we're distracted by all these things. Martha, 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 you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only a few things are necessary, really only one. And Mary has chosen the good part, that which shall not be taken from her. Lord, teach us to sit at your feet, to listen to your word, and to just enjoy you and who you are. Revive your bride and send us, Lord. We want to be a church that sends people to the ends of the earth. We want to be a church that is faithful to preach the gospel on this coastline and wherever we would go in the future that you have for us. Jesus, you are wonderful. Today, if you need to get right with the Lord, this is a good time to do so. We're going to move into a time of worship now. There's going to be a prayer team up here on your right. And you have something you need help with, come and get prayer. Let Him lay hands on you and pray for you. Something you're struggling with or some fear, they want to pray for you. Also, communion is up here. Wonderful time to come and repent on the carpet, partake of the cup and the bread that reminds us of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And also, because our God is so wonderful, we make a place up here for you to come get on your face before Him if you want to. You can come and kneel and get on your face, but let's do business with the Lord now.